you're about to meet a state senator from Fulton County who wants to be the top law enforcement official in the state of Georgia. Hang around. I think you're going to find this really interesting. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is the Chuck Williams Show. Our guest today is Jen Jordan. Jen is a state senator from Fulton County, and welcome to Columbus. Yeah, happy to be here. Okay, I'm going to start right now. You're in a part of the country where your name... Your name means something. Uh, Jordan or Jordan? It's Jordan, and I'm so excited to be here because y'all actually know how to pronounce it. <laughs> we do. We do. We have Jordan Hare Stadium across the river. We have the Jordan family here, but you actually have a connection to one of the Jordans of this area, right? Yeah, a uh, uh, former Superior Court Judge Frank Jordan. Um, so usually if you're a Jordan in Georgia, you're probably from the same tree. Um, and, and Frank is just an incredible human being. And Talbot lives in Talbot, lives out in Talbot County. Of course, they all live, you know, in Talbotton. It's, you know, they all still live close to each other, very close family out there. So you know a little bit about Columbus and the Chattahoochee Valley. Of course. Um, you're a lawyer, you're a state senator, you're a mom. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are. So you indicated that I was from Fulton County, but I'm originally uh, from Dodge County, which is South Georgia. Is that Baxley? No, no. Uh, okay, I got That's Appling County. Okay, okay. I'm a, it's okay. It's hey, okay. Hey. It's uh, it, Eastman, Dodge County, okay. and um, about an hour south of Macon. My mom, um, you know, single mom, right? Yeah. And she was a hairdresser. She had a beauty shop called Sheer Happenings. You get it? Sheer Happenings. I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. We're, we're going to get along just fine. Yeah. I think this is going to work. Yeah. Okay. And so every day after school, I would go there, and I would um, I would hang out, and I would sweep up hair or do whatever she needed me to do. But that's really how I grew up, listening to the women in my community. And um, anybody who comes from a smaller community uh, knows that that beauty shops and barbershops are kind of the hearts of community and let me tell you something you can learn anything you want to know when you go to those places but but that's really how I grew up and I grew up very similar I'm from Ufall Alabama so I have a lot of the same roots and you but you went to Georgia Southern went to Georgia Southern undergrad and uh, then ended up by the grace of God at the University of Georgia School of Law um, graduated there, magna cum laude, and um, then went back south um, to Brunswick, the Golden Isles, to clerk for a federal judge named Anthony Alimo, um, and then came back to Atlanta to practice. What type of law have you practiced in Atlanta? Well, that's a good question, Chuck. I've done just about everything. People used to say, well, what's your, your elevator pitch? And I had such a problem because I do have such a broad practice area. I've done lots in the consumer area with consumer class actions. Um, defense, go, defense or plaintiff side? No, plaintiff side. Going after uh, folks that are, you know, really taking advantage of people. Um, early on in my career, I went after payday lenders in the state and, and basically ran out a whole bunch of them because it's illegal in Georgia and they were charging about a thousand percent interest. Um, I have stopped foreclosures on homes um, when they were wrongful, um, especially in the context of this one case just kind of sticks with me. It was a single mom with two girls who they were trying to um, foreclose during Christmas time. And so it, it just, it, you know, 
and maybe it's just because of where I come from, but I, I just hate it when, when big interest kind of gang up on, on people who just need some help. A lot of lawyers that do the civil work, I put them in two categories. They either represent the top dogs or the underdogs. Um, you've done a lot of representation. Oh, I'm an underdog person. Ah, Let me right. tell you, very all my cases are David versus Goliath. I mean, um, it doesn't. It just isn't my personality to, to, to go with the powerful interest, right? Because really it is about holding those with money and a power accountable when they hurt folks. If you haven't guessed right now, um, Senator Jordan's running on the Democratic ticket. <laughs> um, when you listen to the way she's, talk, she's talking, she is clearly has ideals that line up with Georgia's Democratic Party. Um Ever, do you ever think about being a Republican, or you've been a Democrat your whole life? Well, I've been a Democrat my whole life, but I'll tell you that in terms of my law practice and in kind of just the way I approach life, it really comes more from the way I grew up in the church. Um, that, I mean, that's what the whole I, point. What denomination? Um, Baptist. Okay. Um, and I probably went to church more than I went to school okay. in retrospect, but it was one of those things where if if you look at the Bible, it is about helping your neighbor. It is about um, community and, and loving people for who they are. And so for me, it's not even a Democratic or Republican thing as much as it's it's kind of a values thing. And my values align more with the Democratic Party because of that. And you were elected state senator of Fulton County. What what what's your ta- what's your where you live in Fulton County? So I live in Sandy Springs okay. now, but my district is um, partly in Cobb County and partly in Fulton County. I represent the infamous area of Buckhead, right? I represent... That was in um, the news a little bit last yeah, session. Yeah, it, it really was. I represent Smyrna and Vidings and Chastain Park and Sandy Springs. And just to give your listeners kind of a, a, kind of a taste, it's where Truist Park is, where the Braves yeah. are. I represent that area, but I also represent um, where the governor's mansion is. That is a district that has, there's a lot of conservative votes in there, but there's a lot of progressives in that district, right? Look, I think it's it's one of those things. It's a 50-50 district when I ran um, and actually had been drawn to be a Republican district. I think it was drawn to be about a 60% performing Republican district. Hunter Hill okay. was the former senator, if that gives who, you a who little. Who ran for governor? And was not a moderate. Right. No, he was he not. He was not a moderate. He was an Army Ranger. That's right. And um, and so when he resigned to run for governor, there was a special election, and I decided to run. And people thought I was just crazy. Um, they said, Jen, you know, that's cute, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're glad that you want to do something, but, you know, this is, I mean, this was Hunter Hill's district. But it felt, it just felt like something was different. You know, the women that I was talking to, the other mothers, um, you know, the other professional women even, um, and young people. It just, nobody was really happy with the representation they had. You know, it's interesting. You brought up that Buckhead is part of your district. Buckhead was at the center of the cityhood fight. Um, and I asked this question two weeks ago at the as a panelist on the Republican gubernatorial debate. I asked it to Senator Perdue and to Governor Kemp, and I'm going to ask the same question to you. Why does the Buckhead cityhood issue matter to those of us who don't live in that, the rest of Georgia? Look, we are all tied to Atlanta, right? 
in terms of um, revenue, tax revenue, business, being able to get business to come in, um, and, and the bond issue, the credit rating for the state, right? All of those things. And, and, and I know that a lot of times politicians like to pit Atlanta versus the rest of Georgia, but let me tell you something. We are very much connected, and you have to understand that, you know, if Atlanta isn't doing well, then the rest of the state isn't going to be doing well either. So this really was about protecting the state as a whole um, and pushing back against a movement that w- would have been incredibly, incredibly harmful. That's very different from the answer I heard on the Republican debate because it was about both of them, uh, both Governor Kemp and Senator Perdue, said it's about crime. Do, do you see that as about crime, or is that, is that the way you think the Republicans are trying to frame it? Look, I think in part it was about crime. I think in part it was about um, voters and residents of my area feeling like city officials weren't listening to them and feeling very frustrated, which they should have been. But what Purdue and Kemp don't talk about is that crime is up all over, Right. This isn't a Buckhead thing. This isn't an Atlanta thing. This is not. It's a Columbus and Macon thing. It is a rural Georgia thing. I mean, Dodge County, where I'm from, which most people have not been to, probably has one of the highest crime rates in the state. And so it's one of those things where, look, yeah, we got a problem, but we got a problem everywhere. And responsible elected officials understand that and are trying to do something about it. You have just led beautifully into what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about crime. In Columbus right now, we had 64 murders last year. The crime issue in Columbus was so bad, our district attorney, former district attorney, is in federal or is in state prison on public corruption charges. How your office will be in charge, if your elected attorney general will be in charge of combating that, prosecuting some of it, and coming up with plans to deal with it. How do you plan to do that? And I know that's a terribly broad question. Look, I think it's a really complex problem. I think that you are dealing with criminal gangs that have been allowed to flourish in this state over the last, you know, six to eight years. Um, And they are incredibly complex in how they do things. I mean, one of the things that we did pass, I guess this last year, was the Organized Retail Crime Act because what folks were doing is they were going into Home Depots and places, and it wasn't just a one-off, right? It was about stealing significant amounts of inventory. And then they resell it, and then that's how they um, fund their operations. So you have to look at it from kind of a broader view. Where are they getting their money? Where are their networks? Who are they talking about? You got to cut off the supply of money. You got to cut off the supply of illegal guns because I don't know about you, but in the Atlanta area, when we talk about crime or, or homicides, 95% of them are, are, are gun related, right? Well, the, the car break-ins have to do with stealing weapons or or stuff, a lot of car break-ins, you know, the number one thing stolen is weapons. That's Absolutely. What and so, and this is what's interesting about it. And just for your, for your listeners, if, when you come to Atlanta, you know, who they target are folks who have like an NRA sticker on or a Back the Blue sticker or anything that looks like that they are pro-law enforcement, pro-2A, pro-gun, because that's almost like putting a flag out there that you have a gun in your car. And they mo- almost always, I had a sta- another state senator from North Georgia say to me, 
Jen, you know, they're breaking into our trucks. You know, we've got these these tags from a different county. They're breaking into our trucks, and they're stealing our guns. I was like, well, no, duh. I said, you're basically telling them you got one in there. I would, too, if that was my, you know, if that's what I was trying to do. <laughs> I haven't thought about it, but they are advertising what might be in that in that vehicle. Absolutely. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to look at it. You, you were part of... Did you vote for the legislation that just passed the General Assembly that gives the Attorney General's office more power to prosecute um, gang activity and more people, actually? I did, in part, because I fully intend to be the Attorney General next year. Um, But even apart from that, look, let's be... I want to be crystal clear about this. The Attorney General has had the power to prosecute gang cases and just has failed to do so. We're talking about Attorney General Chris Carr. Explain what you're saying here. So one of the ways that you really go after gangs in terms of uh, multi-jurisdictional cases is you use RICO, which is the Racketeering Act. It's the same thing they used to go after the mafia and Al Capone, and it really is about complex, multi-jurisdictional. It's about organized crime. It's about organized crime, which is what a gang is, right? Yeah. That's all it is, organized crime. And so the attorney general has had the ability to do RICO cases for years. And even apart from that, the attorney general has the ability to prosecute gang cases where a DA has recused himself or said they don't want to do it. And we've had so many that have been languishing for two years where the current attorney general has refused to prosecute them to the point where a judge has had to call them out and say, you know what, if you don't show up, or if you don't appoint a prosecutor here, then I'm going to have to dismiss these guys and let them out. How much of that, if you look, case backlog is a huge issue right now in Georgia. Um, How much of that is not prosecuting? How much of that is related to the pandemic? It's all kind of together. I mean, there were a lot of things coming together in terms of a confluence of events. A new DA, for example, in Augusta was elected. He had a background as a criminal defense lawyer. Well, you can't prosecute a case that you represented the the accused on, right? And so he recused himself. He sent those up to the AG's office. Two years, no action, right? And so I think y'all are going to be dealing with the same situation here, if not worse, because you have a very high profile, very high profile criminal defense attorney who has now been appointed to be the district attorney all of those cases that he has represented or, or had any part in, even as kind of a co-defendant, right, um, he is not going to be able, his office is not going to be able to prosecute. You're, t- and, and you're so talking about Stacey Jackson. I am. I am. And so that is something that Columbus, y'all are really going to be facing. It's going to hit y'all, you know, square. Well, and, and Stacey is scheduled to be sworn in later this month. So that starts to play out, but... Also, what I'm being told, it's not just the cases Stacy's touched. His law partner is Richard Hagler, who is also a high-profile criminal defense attorney. So, absolutely. R- Rich, so Richard's cases will fall under that as well, right? A- absolutely. And, and one of the things you have to understand is is that this isn't. There's nothing wrong with that. When no, I say not that, at all. And I'm if not anything, there is. if anything, it it tells you just how much experience that Stacy has, right? Yes. Like, he is incredibly experienced, and that's what you want of somebody coming into the district attorney's office. Very different than the Mark Jones situation, right? Yes. But it is going to be an issue, especially in light of the fact that there is such a backlog already, 
right here. And um, we're going to put more on top of it. And we have a crime situation. This is going to be an interesting place to watch over the next couple of years because of that. Stacy was a prosecutor um, connected um, to 2008. Then he went to the criminal defense side. Inside the Muskogee County Jail, and this came out in testimony, Stacy is referred to as the black Jesus because he'll set you free. We now are in a situation where multiple homicide detectives have told me over the last few months they welcome what has happened. They want him on their side. They would like rather deal with him in pretrial prep than on a witness stand during a case. I think a lot of criminals are going to wake up and go, whoa, what just happened? He was our guy. That does put us in an interesting spot down here, doesn't it? Well, in a lot of ways, it, it's a great spot to be in because let me be clear here. Because of his background as a prosecutor and as a criminal defense attorney, right, yeah. he gets both sides. He also understands kind of the constitutional imperative that district attorneys have, and he's not going to do anything that is going to jeopardize a case if it goes up to the Court of Appeals, right? Yep. Because if you get a conviction for somebody, especially if it's a violent criminal, something you've been working on for a long time, the last thing you're going to let somebody do, a police officer, anyone, is jeopardize that conviction by doing something unethical or unlawful or unconstitutional. And so for the people of Columbus, I mean, y'all are going to be incredibly well served. I think you're probably right, and I'm looking forward to seeing this because we – had somebody that was not only corrupt, they were clueless, and now we've got somebody who understands the office in the most intricate of, what, intricate of ways. Uh, let's switch gears um, and talk a little bit about your race. Right now, you, I mean, we're a week out. We ne are. Thank goodness. Next Tuesday, there will be a Democratic primary, and you right now appear to be the front runner. You appear to be the person in a two-person race who will be the Democratic nominee. How do you fit on a ballot that in November that's going to include Stacey Abrams at the top in the governor's race and Senator Raphael Warnock, you know, at 1A, 1B, or 1-1 if you want to do it that way. But you've got two high-profile, powerful political and personal figures. How do you fit in as somebody that could be on that Democratic ticket with those two candidates? Look, I'm, I'm looking at the Democratic slate, um, and we're not sure who's going to come out eventually, right? But right now, the, the people that are going to be running as Democrats for these statewide offices, really they are going to reflect the state of Georgia in terms of diversity, in terms of diversity uh, geographically, you know, where you grew up, socioeconomically. Um, even in terms of your profession, I mean, if you think about Reverend Warnock um, being a preacher or, or Stacey Abrams in terms of writing books or whatever, um, it, it's one of those things where it, that's what the people of Georgia want, right? Yep. It, it, the, the people representing, the public officials representing the people really should reflect the people. You could have a very diverse candidate in the secretary, Democrat Secretary of State. Um, Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and a candidate that we know a little bit down here, Charlie Bailey, was going to run. He ran against uh, Chris Carr four years ago. He was taught to move out of 
the AG's race this time and into the lieutenant governor's race, you know, I mean, that race is a lot more of a toss-up. There's a lot of moving pieces in that lieutenant governor Democratic primary. But, I mean. Yeah, I think they've got nine candidates yeah, altogether. It's, it, it's a it, lot. It looks like the Kentucky Derby. It's just all the, but you know. Which means you have no uh, idea. You right? have no clue. And, you know, that's that's the beauty of politics. If you talked to me in 20, even let's say, if you had talked to me in 2015 and said, what do you know about politics? I said, hey, man, I've, you know, I'm from Alabama. You know, I did my internship in George Wallace's campaign in 82 when the black vote elected him. I think I know politics pretty well. This is what I think is going to happen. Last five years, we got a mayor's race. I can't even begin to call it right now. I mean, you know, the the you have a sitting US a former US senator taking on a sitting governor in a primary race that you could have never dreamed of four or six years ago. So politics as we know it as we knew it doesn't exist anymore, right? Right, which makes it hard because everything we've always done politically, um, especially political professionals, right? Yep. Um, it's all about what happened before. Yep. And, you know, I've had a lot of folks listening nationally. Folks will be like, oh, well, generic R versus generic D and all of this kind of stuff. And all I have said to them is there is nothing generic about Georgia, and especially in terms of politics. You know, this morning before I came in here, I was doing some research on you, and I, I started looking at the Pennsylvania uh, Senate race. And the woman who has charged out of nowhere says she was raised on a pig farm in South Alabama, an African-American woman who's running Republican, who is pro-Trump, pro-MAGA, and maybe fixing to upend everything in Pennsylvania. I can't find out what town. I mean, it's like there's no – it's like nobody's done any research. You start trying to Google, and I think we went to the same university, but I don't know that. I mean, it's just crazy how things change so fast. Well, and I'll tell you, I, I feel the same way. I mean, people are just kind of throwing their names, and it, it's one of those things where they tell you that this is what they've done or, or, or where they're from or who they are, and there's not really any vetting happening. Um, I will say that that's why I do think people should run for local office first, right? Yep. Um, I think it's really important to understand how hard it is and to actually represent people and then have to get reelected because that is, that's just something very unique and different. And plus then there really is a public vetting process in terms of who you are and what you've done. If you look at the state Senate seats down here there, I mean, you got Senator Robson Robertson who's a Republican who's got three, four County areas. And then you got Senator Harbison that's got three or four counties to the South. So they've got landmass. They do. You, you don't. You've got a very tight area with a lot of people. I do, and in fact, they had to. I was one of. I was the most populous Democratic district after the census, and so they had to cut. I think they had to cut about forty thousand people out of my district. Where they get them from? They got them actually from Fulton. Okay. And they created another state senate district out of kind of half of mine and went up. But that actually is a Democratic district. I mean, if you look at kind of where I represent now, it has swung from a 60% R district to a 60% D district. Successful trial attorney, fighter for the underdog, 
elected to the Georgia State Senate, controlled by Republicans. The executive branch, controlled by the Republicans. The House, controlled by the Republicans. What have you learned in the last four years? Ooh, um, it has been a growth experience, let me say that. <laughs> I will say that I think that, um, that there are good people on both sides. I think that things have gotten too political and too partisan. Um, to my team versus your team, like talking about it as if it's some kind of sport or some kind of game, when at the end of the day, lives are at stake. Um, and I do think that as a whole, the body is out of step with the people of Georgia. People have always told me that, that it's about a 10 to 20 year kind of behind. And I, I really do understand that now. But the only way we change it is by electing new people um, with diverse backgrounds and lived experiences. You are the very thing, that very person that both parties are courting right now. You're I'm the elusive suburban, suburban woman. You are. I mean, that, exactly. That's you. I mean, we've got one in the studio, Dylan. We've got a, actually like a, a unicorn, sub- <laughs> right? No, you're you're kind of the soccer. I don't know if you're the soccer mom, and that may be offensive, but um, you're the you're the mom. You're the you're the suburban woman that, quite frankly, flipped a congressional district up your way. I mean, you're the people that probably helped Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff capture the U.S. Senate. I mean, and Joe Biden. And Joe Biden, absolutely. So what do people, the worst people in the world for making assumptions are politicians. Politicians will make assumptions in a heartbeat. Journalists maybe second. Um, But what is the assumption about the suburban woman that politicians are making that's just dead wrong? I think that they... um assume that there is some kind of simplistic calculus that is going into people's um, decision-making. And I think what folks need to understand in terms of my district, and and I have been told that the suburban woman is my base, which is a little funny to me. Um, but look, the, the women in my district, they're smart, they're savvy, um, they tend to be well-educated. They tend to be professionals. Career-minded. Career minded. Career minded, even if they're staying home, right? Yep. They usually have advanced degrees. They're smart. So you got to treat them like smart grown-ups, right? They're not, they're not people that you can manipulate with commercials. And they're going to hold your feet to the fire. And if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're hurting their families, then they're going to hold you accountable. <laughs> I tell you what, I need to do more podcasts with you because you segue right into where I want to go. Because the U.S. Supreme Court has had an unprecedented leak. I mean, when you think about a draft of an opinion becoming public before it happens, the Roe v. Wade, uh, the potentially that they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade on a 5-4 vote. Not a done deal, but there's a leaked opinion out there that says that. How important is women's reproductive rights going to be in this election cycle moving into November? I think we need to take it down and just say, talk about women's rights or, okay. or, or, or the rights of people generally. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how unprecedented the leak is, and there's, you know, a lot of folks 
especially Republicans that have been focusing on the leak, people need to focus on the fact that it is unprecedented. It has never happened in the history of our country where we have got the United States Supreme Court, which is going to strip fundamental rights away that have been established for over 50 years. I mean, these are, these are rights that they are actually affirmatively taking away from citizens of this country. And so it's one of those things where it's like there is no analogy for it. And so, yeah, do I think that's going to be an issue? Heck, yeah, it's going to be an issue. Because it's not just about access to reproductive health care and the like. It really is about women being able to make decisions about their lives and their bodies. And it goes back to what I was saying, which is the, w- when you talk about the elusive suburban woman, this is not how you treat them, right? This is not how you treat them. Um, Dylan, when you're cutting the sound bite, I think you just found the one we want to use. Um, uh, it isn't. I mean, and, you know, strong women and women in general are not going to take this well. And I think you're going to see that play out. It's already played out in the Georgia Senate with an abortion bill that was that passed that you got on the floor and you gave a very impassioned speech, but I mean you use uterus, you use words, you clearly made a lot of male senators very uncomfortable that day. Well and 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 Need, they need to understand, like, when what you're doing is regulating a medical procedure, then by God, you better know what you're doing, right? And so it was one of those things where I did not feel comfortable. I was raised, like I said, in Dodge County in the church, and I felt very uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, it was about fighting not only for my daughter, but for every single woman in this state and for those that are to come because it is that important. And look, it goes beyond, you know, like I said, access to health care. We're talking about access to contraception even. I mean, think about that from from a, a perspective of young people even, or, or women outside of Atlanta. And then we can even take a step back even further, because with HB 481, the thing that folks aren't talking about, we always talk about the six-week ban and stuff, yeah. One of the most significant parts of that bill is something called personhood. And so what they did is they said that every fertilized egg, every fertilized egg is a person for purposes of Georgia law. If you think about how the law applies to people and think about how if a fertilized egg is a person. Then if you abort it, you've committed murder. Oh, and not only that, but I mean, the parade is... It's just crazy, the slippery slope. I mean, we even had people talking about, well, if I'm pregnant and in the HOV lane, you know, you can't ticket me kind of thing. So you can't deport somebody who, ha- who is pregnant. Because Can you even put them, can you detain them? Because then the due process rights of the fertilized egg are at issue. I mean, you can see just how crazy that it could, could be. And there was no thought to You've it. You've got me stumped at HOV lane. I'm just sitting here going... What's she talking? Oh, okay. I, I you mean, get that's it? where we are right now. That I is mean, where we are, and that is how crazy it is. If you've got a person in your belly in the HOV lane, you've got two people. You can be pregnant at six weeks, and you got two people, right? Yep. And so we got to talk about the real implications of that, even beyond women. We got to talk about the fact that fertility treatments and fertility clinics and fertility doctors. What is that going to do? 
Are we going to run them out of the state? And if we think about all those babies that have been born because of help from those doctors, or even talking about the incredible residency programs we have in terms of medical schools. Well, if you're an OBGYN and you cannot learn how to do a certain procedure that you have to know how to do as an OBGYN, are we even going to be able to keep our residency programs? Are we talking about Pandora's box? Oh, times a thousand. And there was really no thought given to it. It really was a political calculation. And I had Republicans tell me behind closed doors, Jen, don't worry, don't worry. Supreme Court gonna, is going to stop it, going to overturn it, but it's good politics for us. And I said, we are at a bad place when we care more about if it's good politics over whether it's good policy. Is that one of the reasons you're in this arena now is you, I mean, and I mean this with all due respect, you don't strike me as the normal politician. I'm not. I mean, you don't. I mean, you you know, I have had a lot of politicians sit here and you remind me, and don't take this the wrong way either, uh, Brad Raffensperger does not strike me as a normal politician. In my conversations, I don't with think us. I've ever had anybody compare me to Brad Ravensburger. Oh, I think you just you just did. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's fine, but I mean, somebody who's I'm trying to see how to say this, and I don't want to get me or you or anybody in trouble. But you know, you you seem to me to be, and I know a lot of lawyers. You seem to be to be the one that would take the case for somebody that you know can't afford to pay you if you think they've been wronged? I have done it my entire career. I mean, I have gone after insurance companies for not paying, you know, uh, treatments for breast cancer. Fought it all the way to the 11th Circuit because they were trying to say it was a pre-existing condition. I mean, I have taken on the largest interest, and I have won. And it's about time that the people of Georgia actually had a lawyer that was willing to do that for them. Is it, I mean, do you think that background, I mean, the Attorney General's office is incredibly powerful in what it can and it, can't do. I it, mean, it, it can be powerful. It can be powerful. And it can be a powerful tool for good. What do you tell when you, when you walk into Columbus today and you're going to go into a room of people that don't know you for the most part? I mean, the Carolyn Hughleys and the people that may be around you in the Democratic infrastructure will know you what are you going to tell the people that in a very diverse group of columbus democrats what are you going to tell them that will inspire them to work for you and vote for you in the primary and moving into a general if you're fortunate enough to be there so i think you and i are are similar in a lot of ways in that i am a big believer in the power of story and I think that that, as someone who's a trial lawyer and who has done jury consulting too and has picked juries and argued in front of juries, um, story's important. And I think that I need to go in there and I need to tell them where I come from, who I am, and, um, and kind of my vision. And not, not necessarily bash or, or, or say, you know, people have done wrong or talk about Trump or whatever, but really talk about you know, who I am and what I can do for them. The best storytellers I've ever seen in my life are lawyers talking to 12 people. 
I mean, I've had covered a lot of cases here, and there's one in particular that I've seen practice some because my dad's been on the opposite side of him some, but it's Jerry Beasley over in oh, Alabama. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, that's how we ended up in Alabama. Dad and Jerry Beasley were law partners. And then dad went to the defense side and, Obviously, Mr. Beasley didn't. Um, no, he didn't. No, <laughs> no, no. And I mean, he 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 was heavily involved in the talking powder case um, out in Ohio and other places. I mean, but you can watch trial attorneys when they are making an opening statement or a closing argument. You can watch how they deal with those juries and the stories they weave. Jim Butler, prime example. Um, Joel Woot. Oh, yeah. like that. They're 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 incredibly. I mean, and Jim, man, he he's a great attorney. He can be tough, but oh, he's he, he's really good. You know, and I mean, you know, we we've got some really good ones down this way. Some really y'all good have stuff. some incredible attorneys over here. Yeah, incredible there, attorneys. There, there's no doubt. I mean, Brandon Peak's great. Yeah, I mean, Brandon, um, uh, Brandon, uh, a couple of years ago held a uh, a large international. Um, recycling companies feed the fire when one of their drivers killed an entire family over in East Alabama. I mean, you know, it was a massive, massive settlement. Um, but in, you know, that's where what y'all do that matters. Can you translate that to talking to the voter? Yeah, because let, let's take the example you you just talked about in terms of this family that was killed. If, if, if you're talking about the attorney general, what the attorney general does is c- can take cases just like that, right? If the harm is kind of to the state or to the public. So let me give you an example. In my district, there was a facility that was um, emitting um, a gas called ethylene oxide that causes different types of cancers. Um, it had basically been covered up. Um, journalists uncovered it. Huge story, right? Yep all hell breaks loose, right? Yep. Um, And it was particularly important to me because it wasn't just professional, it was personal. I lived in the affected areas. My children played outside, you know, went to school there. You know, I've had relatives die of cancer that lived in that area. I had a friend dying of breast cancer. I mean, it was... It It hit close to home. It hit close to home, literally and figuratively. So it was one of those things where I did a lot of research and I was like, you know, I'm going to figure out how to do this as a trial attorney, right? Yeah. And what I came away with is that really the only person who could do something was the attorney general. And so I reached out to Chris Carr. I asked him to do something. And not only did he decline, but he really did the attorney general's office kind of went behind closed doors and, and struck a deal to let them continue to operate. Would you like to have that debate with Attorney General Carr in back? I mean, you know, moving into a decent into a November election every day of the week. Any prediction on your race? To you, uh, your race um, coming up, the primary. Do you feel good about it? I never feel good about races. Right? It's almost like I look at campaigns like I look at jury trials, and man, this is a long one. But it really is about you make your pitch, you tell your story, and you try to convince people that you've got the better vision. Um, you know, you have to wait for the verdict. 
Are you worried that some Georgia Democrats are going to cross over, grab Republican ballots? I mean, I've oh, talked. I know they are. Oh, it's happening. I mean, it's happening, and it has never worked for us. Let me say that loud and clear. It has never worked when people think that they're actually going to affect the results. I was on Political Rewind the other day, and Jim Galloway was on there, and Jim and I were talking about that very same thing happening. Him and I, Jim and I are hearing some of the same stuff. There are Democrats, clear Democrats, who are pulling the ballot, but it's not to play havoc on the other side. They want to reward Brad Raffensperger with their vote because of what he did in the face of the pressure from the former president of the United States. I mean, I've heard a number of Democrats say that very thing is, you know, I may not vote for him in in November, but I'm going to go over and vote for him because of what he did in the wake of 2020 election. Have you heard that? I've heard more people concerned about kind of this MAGA slate of of candidates, including uh, former Senator Purdue. Um, you know, you've got Jody Heiss and former Senator Purdue. You've got John Gordon, who's running for attorney general, um, you know, kind of all the way down. It's like, it's like Trump's slate. And I think that there's a lot of concern that if, I- including, let me say also for Lieutenant Governor um, Burt Jones, um, I think there's and a lot Butch of... And Butch Miller, they're shooting, I mean, they're Well, trying- but Butch isn't on the slate, right? yeah. So no, he, no. he's not on the Trump slate. He's not supported he's by trying, Trump. he's trying. Oh, man, has he tried. He tr- has tried, tried, tried. It's almost like Kemp, right? It's like <laughs> he can't do enough. Um, but I think a lot of people are concerned that if those folks make it through, that it's going to empower Trump. Back when all this started two years ago, I was talking to Calvin Smyrie, um, and He's a great, great statesman. And did you see the news that oh, has I just Oh, I did. Broke? The Bahamas. Woo. He just got a better deal than the Dominican. I think he did. I think he did. For those that don't know, uh, President Biden had said he was going to appoint Calvin Ambassador to the Dominican Republic. Uh, Apparently, that boat has sailed to the Bahamas now, and they've now announced that Calvin will be appointed ambassador to the Bahamas. So I see a Freeport trip in my future. Um, But Calvin said, when the other side is shooting at each other, get out of their way. That's right. I mean, he's, I mean, and right now, is that what Democrats should be doing with what's going on in these Republican primaries? Uh, yes, because you're not going to affect the results. And at the end of the day, we have some very competitive primaries in the Democratic race. Secretary of State, LG has nine candidates. I think Secretary of State has five or six. You got two. Right. I've got folks. I've Insurance, three. I mean, so it's one of these things where you think that you're doing something but really what you're doing is you're not enabling the best democrat to get out of the primaries and that is how we win in november well that is a good place to kind of end this and but i want to do what i've done with almost all of my guests over the last year or so um called turn the tables i've been asking you questions and i always get very nervous when i turn this over to a lawyer i, I had Clay Land and Ben Land sitting in these seats one day, and I, and I, I still turned it over. And uh, you do not want Clay Land, ju- federal judge Clay Land, asking you questions. Uh, it's not a good place to be. But uh, ask me a question. I call it turn the tables. Ask me a question, Senator. So you've been in court a lot. Um, what is the most interesting case you've covered? 
the most interesting thing I've ever seen in court was, I mean, I've covered um, a, a, lot. a lot, but over the years. But when Mark Jones was our DA, I started making a point of being in the courtroom when he was in the courtroom trying cases. And back in March or so, March, I mean, he was three months into his tenure. He was trying to murder case. There was a shooting at a party. Um, they, the guy was on trial. Jury had been out for 20 hours. Mark had done a less than good job. The defense attorney had, had done a great job and had hung it up. And the guy had a criminal. The guy that was charged had a criminal history. Obviously, the judge did not allow him because it was prejudicial. So, with the jury out twenty hours, they recess went home for the day. Well, Mark thought it was a good idea to go onto Facebook, and he went to the victim's sister's page and posted. This is paraphrased, but pretty close. This thing would have been over two days ago if I could have told the jury about this guy's criminal history. The district attorney posted that on social media with a jury out. Judge Mullins didn't like that very much. Um, the next morning, it became the first thing they addressed. And I thought I had seen everything. And that day, I realized I hadn't. Mark stood up, and Judge Mullins' question was, Mr. Jones, what gave you the right what do you think gave you the right to make that social media post? And Mark said, the First Amendment, Your Honor. And Mullins looked at him like he had 50 heads. And Mark didn't shut up there. Mark said, well, Chuck Williams can go walk out of here and post anything he wants on social media. Why can't I? And it was at that point I realized we had a district attorney that not only didn't understand the law, didn't understand a lot of anything. And that was one of the most, I mean, I mean, I looked at the defense attorney and he looked at me like, he just said that. And it's like, you and I are going to have to be, you're going to have to back me up and tell the story down the road. But that's what we were dealing with in our criminal justice system for almost a year in Muskogee County. Well, and listen, just that example alone, and that's not even what was the subject of uh, no. the criminal indictment. That should have got him disbarred. That should have got him thrown out of office right there because that is just absolutely, I mean, to do that, you know, ignoring a judge's order, basically violating the constitutional rights of the defendant, I mean, that's just that's just untenable. Well, you know, and you know this probably as well as anybody because if you look at your bio, you've been on the state bar board. And in Georgia – it's been my experience the state bar board doesn't move quick enough to disbar lawyers who have committed ethical or legal violations. I think the board, based on what I've seen over 15 years of covering it, is the Georgia bar board could move. The ethical part of the Georgia bar board probably needs to move quicker in some cases than it does. I mean, Mark spent four months, five months in state prison, and he still had a law license. If he had walked out, he could have practiced. He he forfeited his own law license. It wasn't an it wasn't an action of the board. He literally forfeited his own license. So you know, I mean, well, he could have been. Look, Jones could have been um, criminally indicted for for what you just said in the story. And maybe if he would have been, could have been taken care of a lot sooner. Well, I think they the GBI investigation was going on at that time. Well, Senator Jordan, we've. 
almost said Jordan. I almost said Jordan. Um, Senator Jordan, we really appreciate you being here, you taking the time out of a Columbus visit to talk to us. And I think we'll probably be seeing some more of you as we move toward December. And welcome to Columbus. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to another episode of the Chuck Williams Show. This is the part where Dylan watches me crash the car as we get out of here. But you can listen to the Chuck Williams Show on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8 on WRBL.com. We also are on traditional um, podcast things like uh, platforms like Spotify, Apple, and iHeart. Did I get them all right? I don't normally get them all right. Also, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Chuck Williams. There's no, it's at Chuck Williams. We need a really famous athlete or politician to come along as Chuck Williams, and I'll sell it in a heartbeat. Chuck Williams WRBL on Facebook and on Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. Thanks for listening to the Chuck Williams Show. We hope to see you back again next week. Be safe, guys.